Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheffman. Oliver Brown, the lead plaintiff in Brown versus the Board of Education, was the parent of a child denied access to a Topeka, Kansas school. Clarence Gideon changed the way poor defendants were treated in court. Ernesto Miranda and Jane Roe, both in their own way, were part of cases that extended the rights of individual citizens. The latest name added to this pantheon is that of my guest, Jim Obergefell. He was the named plaintiff in Obergefell versus Hodges, which just one year ago enshrined the civil right of same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Jim has now written about his experiences in a new book entitled Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Gay Equality, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jim Obergefell to the program. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be with you. It's great to have you here. First of all, go back and tell us a little bit about how this case came to be. How did it rise up to become the significant case that it did? How did you become involved in it? Right. So it really started um, on June 26, 2013, when the, the Windsor decision was released by the Supreme Court saying that the federal government had to recognize same-sex marriages. And at that point, my partner John and I had been together over 20 years, and he was dying of ALS. He was bedridden in at-home hospice care. And when that decision came out, I proposed. And we made it happen, even though we had to jump through a lot of hoops. We lived in Ohio, which was a state with a state constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. And with John's health, our only option was a was to try a medical jet. So we made it happen because we wanted and needed to make our promises and commitments public and legal. And we got married, and that was all we wanted to do. When we got back to Cincinnati um, that same day after getting married, that weekend our story was in the local paper, and friends of ours ran into a friend of theirs who's a civil rights attorney at a party. And our story came up in conversation. And that attorney, Al Gerhardstein, asked if they thought we might be willing to talk with them. So we met, and it was that meeting with Al that changed the course of our lives and really has helped move our country forward, resulted in me being the named plaintiff. He pulled out a blank death certificate and said, now, guys, you probably haven't thought about this because who thinks about a death certificate when you've just gotten married, but do you realize that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong? Ohio won't recognize your marriage, and Jim, you won't be listed as his surviving spouse. Well, that broke our hearts, and I think more importantly, it made us angry. So we decided to file suit in federal court, and eight days after we got married, we filed suit in federal district court, and 11 days after we got married, I was in that courtroom for the very first hearing, and at 5 o'clock that day, Federal Judge Timothy Black ruled in our favor. Did you at that point have any idea how significant your case would become? No. Um, and I know for me, I can speak for me personally, to think much beyond John and me and our marriage, it was the bigger picture. It was thinking about the future. And for me, thinking about the future meant thinking about John's death. So at the start, even though, you know, those high school government classes were percolating in the back of my mind, and I knew on one level that the Supreme Court could be a possibility, I really couldn't think about that because all, all I wanted to do was concentrate and focus on the today and my time with John. Mm-hmm. 
And as the case started making its way through the court system, were there times, were there moments because of the publicity, because of the stress involved, the uncertainty involved, were there times that, that you wished that, that maybe you hadn't jumped into this so quickly? No, I can say without hesitation, there was never a time I thought, I wish John and I hadn't made this decision. It was the easiest decision I think I've ever made in my life because this was a way for us to live up to our promises, to fight for each other, and to do what was right. So even though, yes, it took me away from John, I lost some time with John, you know, when I was in the courtroom for for the hearing, when I was doing media, things like that. It took some time away from John, me being with John, but we both knew it was the right thing to do. So never once did I think it was the wrong decision or regret it. I will say when the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against us and the five other cases from Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan, that was the, the one moment that I can think of when I had that possibility where I could have said, you know what, I'm tired. I, I want to go back to my old life. I want to go back to my quiet life, and I don't want to keep pushing this. But even in that moment, I couldn't seriously consider that. There was no way for me to stop, no way for me to stop fighting and go back to the way things had been. What did the lawyers tell you originally that made you think that this could be a successful case? I I struggle to think of anything specific. Um, I will say I think what gave me hope and what made us confident and hopeful that we would succeed, we would be successful, was simply that feeling that this was the right thing, the feeling that no American, if, if our Constitution means anything, the feeling that no American should be told what we were being told and what other people like us across the country were being told. And I will say I think it was our attorney's decision to, to attack that state constitutional amendment on such a narrow focus that also gave us hope because we were going at it from such a narrow point of view and it, our argument also pointed out the fallacy and the animus directed, directed towards the LGBTQ community in that state constitutional amendment. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the narrow focus of the case, what the direction that the lawyers took in this case. Right. So for us, it was all based on that death certificate. And because Ohio would refuse to say John was married and refused to list my name as his surviving spouse on that death certificate, Al, this brilliant, humble, kind lawyer, realized, well, based on the Windsor decision, it says the federal government has to recognize same-sex marriages. Well, why shouldn't that also apply to states? And our argument, the focus of our argument was to say, state of Ohio, you are singling out this group of citizens for unequal treatment. And the way you are doing that is within the state of Ohio, it is not legal for first cousins to get a marriage license. The state of Ohio will not issue marriage licenses to first cousins. They will also not, and I can't remember the exact date or the exact age, but the state of Ohio will not issue marriage licenses to people they consider to be underage. However, in other states where first cousins are able to be issued a marriage license and get married, and in other states where someone younger than the age Ohio considers the age of majority, in other states where those couples can get a marriage license and can be legally married, if they move to Ohio, 
those marriages are immediately recognized hmm. and honored by the state of Ohio. So our argument was this law is unfair, it treats this group of people unequal, and you are not following what you follow for every other couple by denying recognition of a lawful out-of-state marriage. Even though that marriage could not happen in Ohio, you recognize marriages of other from other states that would not be able to be done in Ohio. So that was our argument. Talk a little bit about the arguments when it, the case got to the Supreme Court. Well, the entire process, you know, from the beginning of our case, when we, when the, our attorney started the birth certificate case, when we went to the Sixth Circuit and at the Supreme Court, so much of the arguments were around, well, can't we just wait and see? Let's, you know, attitudes are changing. Why can't these people wait for public attitude to change and for the laws to change. There's also the argument, you know, you're trying to change the definition of something that has existed in one way for millennia. And the argument that this isn't something that should be done by a court, this is something that should be done by the democratic process, let's leave it up to a vote of the people. And those were the, those were the, the main tired arguments that we heard over and over. And when you heard those arguments, talk a little bit about when you, when you heard them coming from the courts. Well, when I think of the argument about letting the democratic process take care of it, I always go back to what our attorney, Al Gerhardstein, said in that very first hearing on our case on July 22nd, 2013, because that argument was presented in court as a reason not to rule in our favor. And Al's immediate response was, and I, I will paraphrase, mm -hmm. but his response was, the surest way to deny the rights of a minor minority is to allow the majority to vote on it. Okay. And that's what I clung to. And every single time that argument came up, I would think Al is absolutely right. And the role of the courts, one of the, role of, one of the roles of the courts is to step in and to ensure that the civil rights, the constitutional rights of all Americans are being protected. And if they can't do it in this case where clearly there is an instance of our constitutional rights being abridged, then they're not doing their job. So that, that was my feeling on that one. And the whole let's wait and see. Talk well, my husband was dying. Why, why should we wait and see? It isn't fair. We were suffering real harm. So wait and see is never an answer. When you look back at the entire process now from some of the earliest cases, the earliest efforts that were made by uh, then Mayor Gavin Newsom in San Francisco back in 2004, when you look at the entire scope of the process, are, are you surprised? Does it seem to you that it went quickly as it does in, in, in many instances, or does it seem like it was, was an endless process? I'm still really surprised at how quickly mm -hmm. attitudes changed, how quickly this changed on a legal basis, how quickly it changed across the country. John and I never expected to be able to marry in our lifetimes. And the fact that we were able to be, to be married came as a surprise. And then the sweeping change in attitudes and the Supreme Court ruling less than two years later, it still amazes and delights me. Because it shows that people can change, people can open their hearts and get to know 
people who differ and understand we are the same and we deserve the same. Given how slow attitudes have traditionally changed, particularly with respect to civil rights issues and differences and the kinds of things you're talking about, do you have a sense of why public attitudes change so rapidly in this regard? Well, I, I get this question pretty frequently, and for me, the, the thing I keep coming back to is I credit social media with a big role in this. And I think back to what Harvey Milk said. You know, he always said, come out, share your story. That's how we change hearts and minds. And our case, I think our case is rooted in John and me and all of these other plaintiffs. We told our stories and we allowed people in. We allowed people to see that at that heart of that legal case were real people, real stories. And social media is this platform where people can share their stories. They can find a community of people that they relate to, that they connect with. But they also have this platform where they can share with people outside of that community who they really are. So I credit social media. I think that has played an enormous role in changing attitudes. To what extent has has the role of, of individuals having personal experience with these issues, be it marriage or, or, or some of these other things that, that you've been dealing with and talking about, that, that really personal experience within families has played a large role? Oh, it's enormous. And I can even, I've even experienced that in my own world. Um, one of my friends I've known since, 1980, since I've known since 1989, she told me that knowing me, having met John, having seen our relationship, and then having watched our fight and my fight and the fight of the other plaintiffs, it helped her understand, it helped her see marriage equality from a different perspective. And she changed her mind about marriage equality. So I know sharing stories and being who we are and being honest about who we are, it does change hearts and minds. I've lived it. Where does the underlying civil rights battle that is here, where does it go next? We know from history that these issues never just end, that there's a certain ongoing vigilance that's required. What's next for this struggle? Well, what's next is always what's next. We can't let the fact that at the moment of any step forward in our country, we seem to take a step backward Mm -hmm. or more. We can't let that stop us. We have to stand firm in our rights and in the progress we have made. And we have to keep speaking up, speaking out, and helping people understand, educate people that we are no different. And I think about our transgender community. Our transgender family has been targeted now as a part of the backlash to marriage equality. And I think that has happened because foes or opponents of LGBTQ equality understand that they are losing the fight. They lost the fight on marriage equality. They are losing the fight when it comes to rights and protections and equality for the LGB part of our community. The transgender community is the most vulnerable, and they have now chosen that part of our community, that part of the American community, to target. And the next most important thing, in my opinion, that we can do, that we need to work toward, is passing the Equality Act. By updating that 1964 Civil Rights Act, we can put into law 
the protections that would impact so many facets of the lives of the LGBTQ community in America. That, to me, is the next biggest, most far-reaching thing that we can do. But we can't do that unless we keep educating, keep talking, keep fighting, keep communicating. Do you think that that's going to be a tougher battle? I hope not. I hope that, you know, coming up on a year, the year anniversary of marriage equality, I hope that as people across the country learn and discover that someone in their life, whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, an acquaintance, as they start to learn and discover that these people have married and they have married someone of the same gender, I hope that that will that will it has to that will continue to change attitudes so we have to focus on that that as marriage quality has happened and as we continue to be come more fully welcomed into the american community things will change and finally how has the notoriety that has come from this changed your life jim oh it's changed it completely you know from the things that i do the places i go those types of things, that has changed completely, the way I spend my time. But for me, the most important, the most personal change has been the discovery that fighting for others, fighting for something bigger than I am, is incredibly important to me. John and I were never activists. I ended up in this place, John and I ended up in this place because of circumstance. And I've now learned that my my worth as a person is determined in great part in how I fight for the worth and the value of others. So that has been the biggest change for me, that I, I am now committed. I am now, now a committed, thoughtful activist, and that will never change. Jim Obergefell, his book is Love Wins, The Lovers and Lawyers Who Fought the Landmark Case for Marriage Equality. Jim, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.